Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a multi-church, multi-city movement of truth, love, and community. For information, visit vintagechurchmovement.com. Here is this week's message. My name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. I'm not going to lie to you, it's difficult to follow that, isn't it? I mean... I don't know what I'm supposed to do now that Pastor Brick has worn an L, or a, uh, a giraffe costume, you know. The other day, they came over for dinner, and he basically said, like, his kids wanted to dress up like Star Wars, and he said, I'm not dressing up like Star Wars, right? He's, he's big on, like, doesn't like anything, like, fantasy or, like, non-real, you know, but then he'll show up in a giraffe costume. It doesn't make any sense to me, but... We're in the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 20. At the beginning of the year, we kind of kicked this series off, and really we're in a two-plus year journey. It's probably going to be more like three years through the book of Exodus, where we're taking big chunks, and then we're taking a break, going through something else, and then coming back to the book of Exodus. And so I want to encourage you, if you are new to Exodus or new to Vintage, you can find all of the resources online. There's going to be a link on the screen, and if you go to that link, you can learn about all the other sermons, our V-group study, uh, as well as, if you're new to the book of Exodus, an introduction booklet to the book of Exodus. So all of that is there. A couple weeks ago, as we re-kicked off Exodus, I shared something with you that I want to keep reiterating over the next several weeks because it really connects with what we're going to be talking about. I said this, everything, everybody say everything. Everything God does is to reveal His glory that we might see Him. Everybody say see and know him. Everybody say no. Everything God does is to reveal his glory that we might see him and that we might know him. And then last week, Pastor Mark Anthony came and he preached on these first three plagues, turning the Nile to blood, bringing frogs all over the land of Egypt, and then filling the air with the gnats. We're going to be looking at the plagues for through six today. But something that I want to come back to again that Mark shared last week is this idea of signs. When you go and you read in the English uh, version of the Exodus story, you're going to read a lot about plagues. But in the Hebrew, the word that is most often used to talk about the plagues is actually signs. Now, what do signs do? They point, right? They show something. When you look at a sign, it's meant to do something. If you're on a road trip and you're traveling and you see a sign that says, you know, uh, my favorite sign is when I'm coming back home to New Orleans, right? And it's like a hundred miles to New Orleans. Then I know, man, we're getting, we're so close. We're getting there. We're almost there, right? Or maybe you are driving and you see a sign that has two yellow flashing lights, And it says 20 miles per hour. I know many of you don't notice those, right? And you just speed through those. Pastor Brick this week shared the only time he ever notices them is when he sees a blinking light in his rearview mirror. Anybody else, right? It reveals something, right? It points to something. Or you're driving and there's a curve up ahead and it says, now these are in yellow, which means what? It's, it's a caution, it's a suggestion, it's a, it's a warning, right? It says go 25 miles per hour around this curve. Now, some of us go 
50, 60, right? Because we, we, we think we can do that. All of these signs have a function. They're meant to do something. They're meant to point. They're meant to tell you something. And what we're seeing in the first three plagues, what we're going to see in today's four, five, and six plagues, and what we're going to see next week is that the signs are pointing, they're revealing something about God and who God is. So let's look, we're going to read today in kind of chunks because this is a really long text. Let's look at Exodus 8, verse 20 through verse 32. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign, do you notice that? Sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. So the fourth sign that we see is the sign of flies. Now, what I want us to do is, right, we're, what we're looking at is that everything God does is to reveal. So what is revealed about God in this fourth sign? It's a theme that we've talked about over and over and over again. It's this, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. Now, sovereign, sovereignty, that's not necessarily a word that we use all the time. Look at what one commentator says about God's sovereignty. He defines it like this. It's the divine attribute of being all-powerful, meaning there is no one more powerful than you. As the King and the Lord who exercises supreme rule over all of creation. Now, that's an issue in the land of Egypt. Why? Who thinks he's sovereign? Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh thinks he is sovereign, but what God is reminding him in this sign is that God is in fact, the Lord is in fact the one who is sovereign. Look, go back and look at verse 22. And look at what it specifically says. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. This was a territory, an area of Egypt where the people of Israel were living. Where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that what? Everybody say it with me. I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now there's a lot going on here. One is God is revealing that he's in fact the agent. He's the one doing the sign. If you go back and you look at the first three signs, the Nile turning to blood, the frogs, and the gnats, God uses Aaron and Aaron's staff to do the sign. But starting in the fourth sign with the flies, God himself acts as the agent. He's the one doing the sign to reveal his glory. That Pharaoh, that Egypt, that Israel, that all the nations might see him and that they might know him. He's the one who does the wonder. But at the same time, do you notice what else he says at the end of verse 22? He says, I am the Lord, all caps by the way, again, the personal name of God, in the midst of the earth. Now that's interesting. Because he doesn't say that he is the Lord in the midst of Egypt. He says, I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Which means what? He's not just sovereign over Egypt. He's not just sovereign over Israel. He is sovereign over all of creation. God controls creation. Look at Psalm 50, verses 10 through 11, a a psalm that you might be familiar with. Look at what the psalmist writes. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. The stuff that doesn't even belong to someone. (laughs) Right? The animals that are out and about, that have never seen a living human being before. God is in control of them. God owns them. God owns the animals that we know of. I'm just so thankful that God owns my dog, right? Because maybe God can do something with her. God controls all of creation. Everything. Which is why he's able to make these animals, things like flies and gnats and frogs, do what they do in Egypt. He's able to control creation, that creation might reveal something about him. So here's the question for you and I. Will you acknowledge God's sovereignty? You might not be a pharaoh or a king, over a country or a territory or ruling in some sort of power. But here's the issue in our culture and in our day. In our day, what we're dealing with is that we think we're the king of our own universe. That we rule and reign and run our world. But the truth that we see in this passage is true for us regardless of how much power or how little power we actually have. 
God is still sovereign. He's not just sovereign over Egypt today. He's not just sovereign over our country today. He's not just sovereign over our region today. He is sovereign over our lives. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage. Do you think Pharaoh thought the Lord was sovereign? The answer is no. But was the Lord sovereign? Yes. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, God is sovereign. We were talking about signs earlier, right? I mean, everywhere you go, you see speed limit signs, right? Now, I'm not going to ask you to, uh, you know, uh, inculpate, is it inculpable? Make yourself inculpable, right? Make yourself guilty. I don't want you to prove your guilt here, but I have a feeling that at times we ignore those speed limit signs. And you might ignore those speed limit signs often to the point that you think you are sovereign over the rules of the land. But just because you haven't been pulled over and ticketed does not mean that you are sovereign. Right? How many of you at some point in your life have realized you're not sovereign over a speed limit sign? Yeah, that's what I thought, right? And many of you at some point in your life will realize and acknowledge that you in fact are not sovereign over those speed limit signs. Just because you haven't experienced it or you don't think you've experienced it doesn't mean God is not sovereign. Just because you don't want it, just because you don't see it, doesn't mean he's sovereign. Doesn't mean that he's not sovereign. God is sovereign even when we don't want it, even when we don't think it, even when we don't believe it, even when we don't see it. He is in control of all of creation. Let's look at the second plague, Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if they refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The fifth plague, the death of the livestock. What do we learn from this passage? In the fourth sign, the Lord is sovereign. In the fifth sign, the Lord is omnipotent. That big word means that God is all-powerful. That within Within the realm of logic, God can do anything and everything. He's omnipotent. Go back and look at verses 3 through 4 of Exodus chapter 9. I want you to see some of the things that happens. Behold, the what? Hand of who? 
The Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Verse 4. But who will make a distinction? Everybody say it. The Lord. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Now, you probably notice this in the fourth plague as well. In the fourth plague, there were no flies around the land of Goshen where the people of Israel dwelt. So God is doing some things that only God can do because He is the only one who is omnipotent. Number one, to be omnipotent, He shows us that He is the one over life and death. Right? If you go back and you look at verse 3, whose hand is it that moves? The hand of the Lord. So God is saying, listen, I'm the one in control. Your livestock are going to die. The people of Israel's livestock are going to live. Why? I'm omnipotent and I control life and death. I can do all things. He not only controls life and death, he has this ability to distinguish between his people and everyone else. Now, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Next week, we're going to look at where all the land turns darkness. And I was reading that this week in preparation for that sermon, and it's incredible to me that in the land of Egypt, everything goes dark, but where the people of Israel dwell, there's light. Is that not crazy? I mean, it's like, just imagine where the line is where New Orleans and Metairie meet. And when you cross over into New Orleans, there's pitch black. When you cross over into Metairie, there's light. I mean, who can do that? Nobody. But what God is reminding the people of Israel, what He's reminding the Egyptians, what He's reminding the nations is that He is omnipotent. If He can distinguish between groups of people, He will. Now listen, this is nothing new. This is something that Jesus even tells us in the Gospel of John. Look at John 15, verse 19. Look at what he says. He's at, the, he's at the upper room with his disciples. He's having the Last Supper with his disciples. He's providing them teaching. And look at what he says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. He's talking to his 12 disciples. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you see God was distinguishing in the book of Exodus between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel because Israel were God's people here right before Jesus goes to the cross he's distinguishing between the world because the world's about ready to do what crucify him and he's distinguishing between his disciples to say the world is, those people are not mine, you are mine. And because I have been hated, you will be hated, but I have chosen you. See, part of God having the ability to distinguish and make a distinction between people is a recognition of the gospel. Is a recognition that God calls people to Himself. You and I, as much as we think that we can come to God, only God can truly bring us to Him. Only God can call us to Him. Were all of the disciples of Jesus looking and going after Jesus? No, they were minding their own business. 
and Jesus called them to himself. And that the truth of the gospel is that God calls us to him, draws us to him for our salvation, that we might be his people. And that's why Jesus came to the earth, right? The death of Jesus on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity, that we might actually be reconciled to God. Jesus rising from the grave to give us the life that only God can give. Now, as much as God calls us to himself, we have to respond. The disciples had to make a decision, right? They had to choose to go with Jesus. The Egyptians, the Israelites, they had to choose. Pharaoh hardened his heart and rejected God. The people of Israel saw the signs and said, listen, this is God. We're going with God. We're following God. Our response to the gospel is the same way. Repenting, recognizing the way we have been living is the way, honestly, Pharaoh has lived. And repenting of that. And then in faith, trusting God. The sign of the cross, right? The sign of the resurrection. We look to those signs and we say, this is what God has done. God has done this on our behalf that we might be forgiven, that we might be given life. And then we have to publicly confess that faith. We do that through baptism, going under the water, being buried with Jesus, coming up out of the water, being raised to life. The Israelites did the same thing. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. What did the people of Israel have to do so that their firstborn was saved? They had to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. It's an act of obedience. Confessing that, God, what you say is going to happen, we believe it, and therefore we're following you and obeying you by putting this blood on our doorpost. So for us, the question is, is will we acknowledge God's omnipotence? Will we acknowledge that God is not only sovereign, but that he is also omnipotent? Here's what I think. Pharaoh in Egypt rejected God's omnipotence. Why? Because they refused to let the people of Israel go. At the end of the day, because they rejected God's request, Moses' request to let the people of Israel go, they were basically saying to God, we don't really truly believe that you're not only sovereign, but that you're omnipotent. And God, in his power, he's like, have you ever seen on your bill, I don't know how many of you actually like read your energy bill for fun, but have you ever seen, especially that little insert that they give, where they say, like, call before you dig? You ever seen that? Because, like, there might be a wire, and if you're digging, the wire might not look like it has power. But if you touch that wire, what could happen? You could be electrocuted. You could die. Why? Because the line has power. You and I, we look at sometimes our life, and we see God, and we're thinking, Man, I don't know, maybe God doesn't have power. Maybe I believe like Pharaoh and that he actually isn't. But listen, God is like that buried line that looks like it doesn't have power. Just because it might look like he doesn't have power doesn't mean he doesn't have power. God's omnipotent. And he's still omnipotent today. Thousands of years later, the power that God demonstrated in these signs, he still has today. Last sign, Exodus 9, verses 8 
through 12. Let's read this together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, notice something with these plagues. It's getting progressively worse. At first, it's kind of a nuisance. It's like, you know, frogs everywhere, uh, gnats everywhere. I mean, that's kind of a pain, right? I don't know. Does anybody have those lizards that crawl all over their house at night? We have those, like, they're like see-through, right? Those are a nuisance. I'm just like, I don't really like them. The kids freak out when they jump on them while we're walking into the house. It's a nuisance. But then your livelihood is killed, the livestock, right? They're all dead because God judges, is, uh, judges Egypt. That's not a nuisance. That's a problem. But then the signs begin to affect you. It's no longer everything around you. It's no longer your stuff. Instead, you're breaking out in boils and rashes and all kinds of skin disease. I mean, th- these things are getting progressively worse. And part of what all of this shows us, this sign in particular, is that the Lord is just. He's not only sovereign, He's not only omnipotent, He is just. Look at verse 11 of Exodus chapter 9. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of all the boils. Meaning they were like, I mean, number one, I think there was some physical pain, right? But then number two... They didn't want to stand before Moses anymore because Moses had proven the power of God. Not only could they not remove these signs, they could not reproduce these signs anymore. They couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon whom? All the Egyptians. This isn't just affecting one group of people. This isn't just affecting a segment of the population. It's upon all of the Egyptians. And what this was doing is that the Lord was judging the people of Egypt. Now you could say this honestly about all of these signs. Signs 1 through 10, all the plagues are all judgment against the people of Egypt. But what did I just say is these get progressively worse. They get more personal. And what these signs show us is that God is judging the people of Egypt for the enslavement of Israel, for the pride of Pharaoh. And if you know anything about these signs, you know anything about these plagues, you know that it's only going to get worse. God's judging. Now here's the question for you and I, which is one of probably the most difficult and challenging questions for us, is will we acknowledge God's justice. Pharaoh and Egypt experienced God's justice because they refused to acknowledge the Lord. They refused to acknowledge that God is, in fact, the one who is sovereign. God is, in fact, the one who is omnipotent, that they should then let the people of Israel go. 
And because they refused that, they experienced the judgment of God. And in the judgment of God is the justice of God. Now, the challenge for you and I is that sometimes we look in our own lives, sometimes we look in our own world, and we question and wonder whether or not God is still just. That if God, this is the problem of evil, right? If God is an all-powerful, all-loving God, why do bad things happen? Why do these kinds of things happen? I thought about it like this, and I know it's kind of an imperfect illustration, but does anybody ever watch those like cold case shows? I know, we're, people that watch those, no offense, I watch them, we're a little twisted, right? We, but it's an interesting story, and you begin to see all of the case unfold, and you know, it's a cold case, why? Because they never found out who did it, right? And then something happens, and the case breaks, and they find the killer or the criminal, and then the case is closed. I mean, that's the perfect scenario, right? And sometimes I think what we see when we see God's justice and we see God's judgment is we see a cold case that's never going to be solved. And we just assume, well, that's that. And I mean, if God is truly God, if he is sovereign, if he is omnipotent, I mean, he would have closed this case. There would have been no issues. Why are we still dealing with all of this? I want to remind you of a passage in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. James is writing to the church And listen to what he says, and I think he's talking about God's justice. He's talking about God's judgment. He says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. What's the significance of the coming of the Lord? The justice of God is finalized. It's fulfilled. So even in this day, a couple of decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the people of God are still struggling with justice. The brother of Jesus, James, says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he uses an illustration. Look at what he says. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. By the way, can you control the rain? Okay, that's a obvious answer right no you can't control the rain so James is saying what just like the farmer can't control when it rains whether it's an early rain or a late rain we should be what patient look at verse 8 you also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand we're to be patient Sometimes it's difficult when we look out in our own world, when we look at the world that we live in, and we say, God, if you're a good God, if you're an all-powerful God, why are you allowing these things to happen? James is saying, be patient. The timing of God's justice is not up to you. It's like a farmer. You have to be patient. There might be early rains. There might be late rains. But the reason that we can have confidence, the reason that we can have faith, the reason we can trust God is why? The coming of the Lord is at hand. That when we look at our own lives and we see where we have experienced injustice 
Or we look out in our world and we see all of the injustices that are happening in our world and we ask God, God, what are you going to do about this? Why won't you do something about this? God is telling us, be patient. My timing is not your timing. One of the things that is promised is that just as Jesus left, Acts chapter 1, he ascends to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. The angels there tell the disciples what? Just as you've seen him left, he will return. Jesus will return in triumph as a ruling, reigning, conquering king. And in that moment when he returns, there will be a resurrection where everyone is resurrected. And everyone will stand before the Lord in judgment. Now, we don't like to think about that. But in Christ, it's no longer our righteousness that God sees, it's Christ's righteousness. Those who are outside of Christ, the distinction between people, the world and followers of Jesus, those who are of the world outside of Christ, guess what? They will be judged. And they will be punished for their unrighteous deeds. And God's justice will be met. God is a just God. God's justice may seem like it's delayed, but just because you feel like it's delayed doesn't mean it's devoid. Doesn't mean it's missing. Don't forget, the people of Israel were enslaved for how long? 400 years. There were Israelites that never experienced freedom. They were born into slavery and they died in slavery. But God was faithful to his covenant to redeem Israel and ultimately to judge Egypt. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is just. The Lord's signs progressively reveal who he is, what he has, and whose are his. That's what I think these three plagues show us. Now, here's the thing, though, about signs. We've already talked about road signs. We miss them sometimes, right? Or we just outright ignore them. God's signs are the same way. Many of us are missing God's signs. Many of us are simply ignoring God's signs. And God's trying to show us something. John chapter 14, one of the, what I think is one of the more interesting passages. Again, it's a passage in the upper room discourse. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's having the last supper with them. He is teaching them some things. And look at what transpires in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, 
and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Is it not crazy that for three to three and a half years, these 12 men follow Jesus, saw Jesus do some incredibly miraculous things that only God could do. Philip looks at Jesus and says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, when you think about these ten plagues, these ten signs, what I want you to think about is that ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate sign. Jesus is the ultimate sign that finally and and fully reveals who the Lord is, what He has, and whose are His. I think in life we can give ourselves a little bit of grace, right? Because Philip missed it. He was there with the Jesus in the flesh and did not see and understand all the signs that Jesus was doing that would reveal that he is from the Father. And that in fact, if they had seen Jesus, they had seen the Father. They had seen whom? The Lord. For you and I, it's a reminder In Jesus, we have the Father. In Jesus, we have the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that for some of us, if we're still searching and we're asking God to show us this or show us that, what I want you to understand is, listen, the ultimate sign is Jesus. In his life, death, resurrection, that is his sign. If you want to see the Lord, you want to know the Lord, you want to know whether or not God exists, you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. We've seen him. We know who God is. Don't miss the signs. See the sign and know the Lord. See the sign and know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself. For making your presence known, God, for uh, in your presence giving us glimpses of your character, of your power, who you are. God, in your revelation, God, helping us see whose are yours. 
And Father, we thank you for the ultimate sign that is your son, Jesus. I pray that God, all of us would see him and know him. That we would know you. So help us, Father God, as we respond to you. We love you. Thank you for loving us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.